This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. And what is the point of life in the entire 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes in about 40 minutes? So uh, it is it's an ambitious endeavor, but I, I felt like this book is so perfect, especially for those who may be new to the Bible or investigating Christianity. Um, and so I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give a survey of what do we learn, what are the big ideas in this book. And I trust it will uh, help all of us and help your friends too. So today we're going to finish the book, uh, Ecclesiastes 12. Um, I'm going to start in verse 8 and read till the end. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a study that comes to a conclusion today, and we pray that you would remind us, those of us who've been around, what, what you've taught us, and uh, we pray that we would get your final application and your point to us through this section. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our hearts. We realize that without you speaking through your word to our hearts, then we are just going through an intellectual exercise that will do us no good. And so we pray that this would do us good, that the word, the God-breathed word, would have its effect to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to encourage us, to strengthen us today. So have your way in each of our lives through this passage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 8, where we just started, now, the way you're passage may be broken out. The last section may look like it starts at verse 9. But I I included verse 8 because this is where he started the book. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, this is where he starts. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then we come to the end, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, 12.8, says the preacher, all is vanity. The preacher is a guy named Ecclesiastes, and uh, he's the one who's written the book. He's called the preacher, or the teacher is how he refers to himself. And he's using a literary technique that he starts with a statement, and he closes with a statement. And that is to communicate to us that that is really the purpose of what he has sought to communicate. Now, he's used this phrase throughout the book, 
But he's giving us this beginning and ending, the bookends of his entire book, to let us know his point. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you're a first-time guest, maybe you're saying, wow, I'm kind of glad I wasn't here the last four months. It sounds a little depressing to me, and uh, whatever I was doing sounds better than what you guys have been doing. Well, you have to understand, when we, four months later, we have a very different picture of what he means by that than when we read it in chapter 1 and verse 2. This word vanity is literally vapor. And it's, uh, it means vapor. It's a multi-purpose metaphor that he uses. And uh, it, it's like uh, the vapor. It's like if you were to boil water and you see the steam coming off. That, that's this word. Or uh, it, on a freezing day, if you were to breathe and your breath is visible, uh, which is a very foreign thought at this time of the year, is it not? But that day's coming. And uh, if, if you could see that and see what it's like, that's what he's talking about. So it means something that's light, something that ultimately is meaningless, it lacks weight, it's temporary, it's fleeting. He can use it to to kind of communicate different things, but that's sort of the idea, that that is life. It's this little vapor that appears, and then it's gone, and it's really rather empty. Now, that doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? Well, here's what he does to make his point, is he talks about two kinds of life, really two perspectives on life. One is life under the sun. He uses that phrase a lot, life under the sun. Life under the sun means life without reference to God. And so his point in the book is, if you live your life without reference to God, if you live your life without faith and trust in God, if you live your life without God being the active a ruler of your life, then that is your life, that vapor that appears and then is gone. On the other hand, he says, that if you live your life for God, your life is full of meaning. And so kind of the purpose of the book, which we'll talk about next week, is that life without God is meaningless. Life with God is so full of meaning that even the most basic activities can be filled with joy. Things like eating, things like going to work, um, things like uh, being a student, a homemaker, someone in the marketplace working, uh, even as we're celebrating Labor Day weekend. The reality is that labor, as those who know the Lord, is filled with meaning. Even though it may be unpleasant and difficult and stretching, there is meaning to it if we see God in it all. That's the point of the book. And so without God, nothing matters. With God, everything matters. And he's going to drive that point home one more time here. With God, everything matters. Now he does three things in these last few verses. The first thing he does is he gives us kind of a brief description of Ecclesiastes. Now something interesting happens in verse 9 is that he starts referring to uh, the, uh, he starts referring to the preacher uh, in the third person. So some people think that verses 9 through 14 are written by an editor kind of at the conclusion of the book. As long as we believe that that editor wrote entirely under the inspiration of Scripture and all of these words are inerrant, then we really shouldn't have any problem with that. He doesn't say, he doesn't claim, I, the, the preacher, am writing this, these last few verses. So this may be an editor, or it may be him referring to himself in the third person. But either way, this is what he says. First of all, that he's wise. Um, verse 9, besides being wise, the, people, uh, the preacher also taught people wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 16, he 
describes himself as wise. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. The author Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is probably King Solomon, and he describes himself as wiser than others. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 4, uh, it's recorded that, that King Solomon, Ecclesiastes, that he uh, wrote 3,000 proverbs. Uh, that he wrote a thousand and five, why it says a thousand five is exact, a thousand and five songs. So we have a sampling of what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs. So he wrote a lot of Proverbs, and he did that carefully, weighing, verse 9, studying arranging them with great care. So he wasn't just cutting and pasting uh, the, the, the latest uh, self-help wisdom. He's not just retweeting some comment that somebody makes out there. He is thinking, arranging, studying, praying, listening to God, and he is putting his works in an order that will teach people knowledge. So he does it to serve others with great care. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So his words are a delight. They're delightful. Even when we first read it, when we opened this book up, uh, it's angst-driven, it's hopeless, it's depressing because he's writing about life under the sun without reference to God. You kind of don't know that fully right at the beginning. And, um, but they're delightful words because even if we contrast the ugliness and the emptiness of life without God with the joy that is in God, there's a beauty in that. And it's true of all of Scripture. All of Scripture are a delight to the soul, to the person who has the Spirit of God living in them. If you are a Christian, this is one sign of someone who is a Christian. If you are a Christian, God dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. And when God speaks to us through His Word, which is God-breathed, it will be delightful to the soul. Maybe not every time you pick up your Bible, but but there will be a consistent pattern in your life that there will be delight in your soul when you read the Scripture or when you hear it taught like today. So he says it's beautiful, it's delightful, and most importantly, perhaps, it is true. He wrote words of truth, and this is true of all of Scripture. The Scripture is true, regardless of what anyone else says, regardless of what anyone else's experiences are. Second uh, Timothy says it is the God-breathed Word. It is the very truth of God spoken to us. God's perspective is always right. We hear voices. We hear opinions. We're about to enter into the highest, uh, culturally the highest, season of opinion giving that we ever have. It comes around every four years around the time of a presidential election and everybody is airing their thoughts all over the place. Talking heads on TV, so-called experts here and there, uh, average guy at the water cooler. So everybody's airing their opinions. There's a lot of opinions, but the truth is that there's one opinion that is the standard opinion because it is truth. And it is God's word, whatever he says. And so Solomon says, or the editor says, that he wrote words of truth. This is a description of the book. Firstly, the description of Ecclesiastes, it is arranged, word of God, delightful, and it is a word of truth. Secondly, he talks about the effect of this book. What is the effect of this book? Verse 11, the words of the wise, which is this book, are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. So he makes two points here. He said, here is what the book of Ecclesiastes, here's the effect. So after you've read it, after you've studied it, here's the effect that it should have on your soul. And actually, this is true of all scripture. Number one, it's a goad. That means nothing to most of us probably. What is a goad? Um, you know, it's, is that like a version of went? I went there. I goad there. That's what your three-year-old, that's what your three-year-old, that's how, that's the past tense of go for a three-year-old. And uh, that's the world-class joke that Rob's going to tell. Uh, so I, sorry to blow that, but... Uh, so that's what is a goad. A goad, uh, we don't know what that is because it's an agricultural instrument, an instrument of pain, actually. It's a long stick with a sharp point on it. And so a farmer, when he is, um, um, when he's out in the field uh, and, he's, has, and he's, 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 the ox is pulling him, the ox is going down the rows and plowing, if the ox stops, you goad the ox. You take the goad, you poke the ox and say, get up, ox, let's go. And a shepherd used a goad as well. If you are walking with your sheep and they are about to wander off or to go into danger, especially if you're on a hillside, maybe there's a cliff down below. Uh, if you move the wrong direction, you get hurt. If you get away from the herd, uh, you get hurt. Uh, you could walk into danger. So a shepherd had a goad. You would poke a sheep. Get back over here. You're headed towards danger. And so he says the word of God is like a farmer's or a shepherd's um, goad. That when we read this book, and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes he's talking about here, that it has this effect, that it will poke us at points. And it actually will hurt some. The point of a goad, it wasn't like Gucci, Gucci, goo, Mr. Ox. It was get going, Mr. Ox. We need to plow. We've got work to do. It's chapter 12, sow your seed at night and day. Don't sit on your bag of seeds, sow your seed. That's goading. It protects us. It protects us from getting into danger. So in the early chapters, when Ecclesiastes says, here's all the stuff I did, and he gives us his autobiography, and it's like juicier than any testimony you've ever heard publicly given about before and after with the Lord, because his before is he had everything. This guy had it all in terms of wealth and power and respect, <coughs> sex, music, uh, the arts, wine, gardens, beauty. He had everything. Uh, wives, servants, <coughs> excuse me, he had everything. And what he says was, I went down that path and it was meaningless. That's a goad. That's the word of God saying, hey, look, little sheep, you're about to get into danger because you're chasing the same things he is. You're thinking the good life is the same thing he is. Goad. And it pokes us in the ribs and saying, don't go that way. Why? Because God messes with people? No, because God loves people. A shepherd who pokes his sheep, it's for their safety. It's for their safety. And so he says, the word of God is like a goat. It guards, guards us from wandering into danger. It redirects us. It gets us moving when we stop and we're not running after God, following God. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. When we cease to follow, the word of God goads us because God loves us and cares about us. And at times a goad is painful, but it is necessary. Here's a truth that's not very popular in America. 
The Bible does not always make us feel immediately good. And when you hear the Bible taught, or when you read it, you will not always immediately feel good. God's short-term goal is not that you feel good. His long-term goal is that you will feel better than you can ever imagine when you stand before Him in glory and see Him in all His splendor. That's going to feel better than anything you can imagine. But for right now, right now, His goal in reading the Bible is not that everybody feels Wonderful, happy, warm, airy, cheery, light, fluffy, wispy, all the time. When we come to the Bible, sometimes we should feel a poke. Sometimes our conscience should be poked. And if it doesn't, well, there's only a couple of options. One is we're not alive. Our spirit is not alive. Two, we're reading or listening selectively. Where we're listening selectively because this is one purpose of God's word. When you encounter God's word, when you hear it preached, you sometimes, not all the time, not every Sunday, not the whole purpose of every Sunday, but sometimes you should feel a poke in your ribcage, which says, go this way, which says you're stalled and should be moving. Now, with that poke, There is the grace of God, the Spirit of God, which helps us to get back on track. There are the people of God that are to surround us in love, that help us move along. There is the hope of God. It's not a poke that says, you're a loser, it's over, you're a big sinner, you're sorry. That's not the poke of God. The poke of God is God is holy. This is what His Word says. The loving shepherd is moving us into His care, and that's hopeful. So conviction should always be attached to hope. The goad always has a good purpose, a good purpose in view. But we don't sort of like that sometimes. We don't necessarily want to hear the goad. We kind of want to go our own way, and that's the point of his book. He's saying, if you go your own way and you fill yourself with what you think will make you happy, you will end up full of angst, depressed, hopeless, empty. You read the first chapter or two, it's suicidal almost in nature. It's like I looked out and there is no meaning to life. That's where going your own way without the go to the Lord will lead you. So we think, man, that, why, are they po- why is the scripture poking around? Why are they poking around on us? That doesn't seem like the love of God. No, the love of, here's the lack of the love of God. If you feel the poke of scripture, that is the love of God. This is what is not the love of God. Go your own way into destruction. Go your own way. Fill yourself with your own pleasure because misery awaits you. That's not the love of God. The love of God is the love of God that will come around and care for us, help us, point us the right way, discipline us, and always do that with tremendous hope. The gospel gives tremendous hope that the poke is a poke of love. We're secure in his hands. We're secure in his love. Well, he uses another picture as well. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. So this book and the book of Scripture, the Scripture in general, in this book, they are also like a nail which is firmly fixed. This is a word that was sometimes used for a tent peg. And so just like a tent peg is hammered into the ground, and when the pegs are secure in the ground, the tent is secure. That's the purpose of the Scripture. 
The Scripture nails things down. The Scripture nails our hearts down so that we can have stability. A tent that is not pegged down does not have stability. So when the first wind comes, there goes your tent. But when it's nailed down, it's fixed in place, and there's something that is securing about that. So the Word of God secures our hearts. What Solomon would say in this book is, the things of this world are not securing. They're meaningless. They're vapor. A vapor is not secure. The steam which comes up off boiling water is not secure. It's fleeting. You can't grab it. There's no substance to it. It's not nailed down. The Word of God nails down our lives so that there is a security in Him. This is a wonderful thing. One of the truths in this book that is primary... um, is the truth of God's sovereignty, which means God rules and reigns over all. God is in control of all. That is securing. Listen, in, if that is nailed into your soul, if the, if the sovereignty of God is nailed into your heart, that God is good, God is loving, God is powerful, God is in control, ruling and reigning over all, then when the difficulties of life come, your tent won't blow away. You'll be pegged down. That's what the Word of God does. It pegs us down so that we are stable even when difficulty comes. Chapter 3, he made this point in that beautiful poem, which is there's a time to live and a a time to be born and a time to die, time to laugh and a time to weep. A time to pluck up and a time to plant. He talks about all those things. There's there's different seasons in life, but God is sovereign over over them all because he goes on to say that in that passage, chapter 3, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing else can be added to it, nor nothing taken away from it. That's just one doctrine, a primary doctrine in this book. Just one example of how things are nailed down. God wants to nail down in our hearts the love of God in our souls. So we don't look at circumstances and question whether God loves us. But we believe the scripture. We see the love of God caring for us as a good shepherd. We see the love of God expressed to us in Jesus giving his life to us, for us. So that's nailed in our soul. He's in control. That's nailed in our soul. God wants to take those things so that when difficulty comes and life is confusing like Solomon talks about, he says life is a lot of times very crazy. Because righteous people are having a really bad life and look like they're getting punished for their righteousness. And unrighteous people are prospering. So how do you figure it out, Solomon says? Well, if we don't have the sovereignty of God nailed into our soul by the word, then we will blow around when that comes. We'll be spun out of control. We'll be hopeless. Life, you know, panicking. But the, the word of God nails things down for us. When, when I, lived in, I lived in California for... Oh, almost two decades from Texas, grew up here, I'm a Texan, uh, but spent a couple decades in California, Southern California, which was a great experience, all California jokes aside, we loved it and had a great experience there, um, especially in August or September, wherever we are, about this time of the year, especially. But, um, but um, one of the things that's so different there, especially when, I first, when we first moved, Ginger and I first moved there in the 80s, late 80s, there was a number of earthquakes when we lived in the L.A. area. So we went through a few earthquakes, had no clue about it. Um, but one of the things that's just culturally that people talk about there, not, not a lot of people do it, but it's talked about there, is that you need an earthquake preparedness kit. I mean, I lived there almost 20 years and never had one, which was just sort of dumb. But you, you needed to have some fresh drinking water, 
um, you, you needed to have some, some canned food. And some people who are really into it, like you would rotate out your canned food every so often. You needed like a bl- some blankets maybe. Uh, you needed, uh, well, I don't know what all you need because I never had one. But you needed uh, <laughs> uh, flashlights, I think, were a good idea because there's no power for multiple days in a big earthquake. And batteries and maybe a radio where you could find out, uh, you know, emergency things. But, but the deal was, the time to get your earthquake preparedness kit was like when everything's great. Because when the earthquake comes, I guess if you're like me, you're just like running out to the store. Hey, let me go get a flashlight, and the store crumbled down, and you can't get in there. And whatever, you know, let, let me get some fresh drinking water. I guess I'll go over to my friend's house and just bum some water or something. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just, that's not the time to find out you need a flashlight is when the power is off. The time to find out you need food is not when the store is crumbled and you can't get into it because there's a major earthquake. The time to figure out you need the supplies is when life is even keel. And I was thinking about that for our church and for individuals and thinking the time to get the love of God, the sovereignty of God, the time to get the truths of Ecclesiastes nailed down to our soul is when life is even keel. Because if, you have, if you're not in a period of suffering, you will be. You will suffer. I will suffer. There's no way around it. There's just no way around it. We will suffer in this life in the time to have things nailed down. You don't nail down your tent in a hurricane. You need to nail it down while everything is smooth so that when, when the wind comes, you're nailed down. That is the truth of Scripture. So what does the Scripture do? Uh, it, it pokes us in the right direction to guard us, protect us, and care for us at times. It goads us. And it secures us in God. And it is all, he says, the voice, verse 11, the voice of one shepherd. It is given by one shepherd. Who is that? Well, Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus gave his life so that we might be his sheep. That's the beauty of the word of God is that that God is shepherding us. Jesus, the good shepherd, is shepherding us through the word. Isn't that wonderful? That, that God cares enough that he's... Fe- what does a shepherd do? He feeds us through his word so that we're nourished. He protects us. He goads us. He secures us so that when the difficulty comes, we're sheltered and we're protected. He speaks to us. He communicates his love to us. He communicates hope to us. He convicts us of sin so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. He, he guards us from going down the wrong road. Um, he loves us. He holds us. He welcomes us. He places us in a, in a good pasture to feed us and places us with other sheep. He places us in a body. He shepherds us as a church. We walk through times and seasons together as a church, and he is with us, guiding us, shepherding us caring for us, never leaving us, never forsaking us. That is the work of the shepherd. And so that's why the scripture is so important, because it is God's care for us. Whenever we encounter the word, I said we should feel at times a poke, we should always feel the shepherd's care, always. Whether it's a straight encouragement, whether it's a conviction, whether it's hope, whether it's amazement, whether it's awe at God, whether it's a reminder of his faithfulness, whether we're blown away by a vision of his holiness, whatever the, the scripture is communicating to us, God's shepherding us. He's shepherding us. He's securing us. 
He is caring for us. And that's why he says that following that, hey, look, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. Don't abuse that, students. That doesn't mean that um, I don't really need to read anything. I mean, the Bible says it's weariness to the flesh, and who would want to do that? His point is that you can go anywhere looking for all kinds of truth, but the truth of the Scripture is what really matters. It doesn't mean that all other knowledge is worthless. He's not saying that. But he's saying that ultimately God shepherds us through the truth of the Scripture. So you can seek wisdom in a lot of different places. And if you live your life reading books, trying to find wisdom apart from the Scripture, you won't find it. You'll find it in the Scripture. The last thing he does is he gives us the big takeaway point. This is the grand finale. The end of the matter, verse 13, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is, this is his big conclusion, the big reveal, as it were. All the work's been going on here, and now he's moving the bus, and here's the big reveal, and this is it. He's showing it to us right here. He has experienced everything that a person can experience. He's smarter than anybody else. He's studied. He's, he's written and studied and arranged all these Proverbs. He's wiser than any other king, he says early in the book. He's, a, he's everything. He's like every man. He's the Renaissance man. He can do it all. He's experienced it all. He knows it all. He's gone down the road and through experience come to emptiness in life. And now he's going to give us his big conclusion. His big conclusion is fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And then he says, for, because, why? Because God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, before we look at fear God and and keep his commandments, I I want to look at this reason. Because his last verse of the whole book is about judgment. That's that's, That's where he ends. He ends with looking at final judgment. Why? Why? Well, here's the reason. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If there is no God, life is vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. If there is no judge, life is meaningless. If there is no judgment, ultimately life is meaningless. That's what Phil Riken in the commentary we've been reading, this is how he said it. If there is no God, then there is no judge. If there is no judge, then there will be no final judgment. If there is no final judgment, there is no ultimate meaning to life, nothing matters. He's been saying nothing matters. At points he talked about injustice and people being abused and why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. He asks all these big philosophical questions. And he comes to the end and he says, well, the fact that there is a final accountability ensures that there is meaning in the universe. It ensures there is fairness and equity and righteousness in the universe. And as a culture, we tend to recoil. Anytime we hear about judgment or anytime we hear about God the judge, we tend to recoil and start you know, thinking, oh, is that like some Puritan idea with some guy dressed in black and a really long finger pointing at everyone and trying to make them feel real bad or scare them into acting the way he wants them to, to act, like it's this puritanical idea. But the reality is, if there is no final judgment, there is no meaning in life. There's no hope in life. And inside, though we may mock this as a culture, we really want this. We really want this. I mean, I read last week, 
And I don't know all the details. I'm not making this is these are not, I'm not making political statements here. I'm not making statements about uh, the justice system and comparing or anything. But let me just say what I read last week. I read last week that the guy in Norway, who was kind of the anti-Muslim guy, who killed 77 people and confessed that he killed 77 people, was sentenced to 21 years in a three-room suite of a prison with television and a laptop. And the article I read said that for each person he killed, he would be serving less than four months in that environment. Now, I don't talk about justice in Norway and the U.S., and this isn't about the death penalty. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. All I want to say is, if you're serving in a posh environment less than four months for every life you took, there's something in us that should say, that's not right. There's something to say, life is pretty cheap if that's the case. And there's something in us that when you see a guilty person walk because of, ju- because of a technicality or because of a judge is soft or a society is soft, there's something about when you see that that we, we react to and say, we don't like injustice, ultimately. And what he says is there is real meaning to life. He says, without God, nothing matters. With God, everything matters. And here's my final point. Everything matters because every secret thing, whether good or evil, will be brought into judgment. He says God will evaluate everything. God is evaluating everything. For 12 chapters, he's been saying, in God, everything matters. Your meals matter. Your work matters. Your marriage matters. Your parenting matters. Your friendships matter. Your sports matter. Your entertainment matters. Everything matters. Everything we talked about last week is an opportunity. Everything that can be received from God is an opportunity to worship the Lord. Not just the things that we think are spiritual, but all of life. Our jobs, our eating, our friendships. Everything can be an opportunity to glorify the Lord. You're saying, well, this message sounds a lot different than last week. Last week it was say yes and do what your heart says, and this week it's judgment. No, it's the same thing. It's the same message. It's the same chapter. One is, we're saying that that life is an opportunity to sow seed, to invest in others, to use, leverage everything he's given you for his glory, to enjoy him, to be filled with joy, and to realize that all of our life is examined, and will be examined at the end, that everything counts, good and evil, that it all matters is what he's saying. If that's not true, life is meaningless. So, I said last week, we're accountable, good and evil. We're accountable to enjoy all that God has provided. Wow, what a great commandment. God expects me to enjoy what He's provided. Basically, God expects me to enjoy my life because it's a gift of God and all that He provides is to be used for His glory. That's true. I'll also be given account for every evil that I've done. So every time I've chased what Solomon chases and I've lived life under the sun without God... And gone my own way, I'm accountable for that too. So I'm accountable for good and for evil is what he says. And without that, there is no meaning in life. And that's the answer. If you remember earlier in the chapters where he said, life doesn't make sense, there's injustice. I've seen people treated unjustly. And he talked about that society-wise. He saw the rich take advantage of others. So how do you make sense of a life? How, how, do, you grow, how do you not grow hopeless in a world where the certain governments oppress people, where certain governments actually commit genocide and kill large groups of people. How do you make sense of a world and a God that allows a world to go on like that? How do you make a sense of a world where there's so 
uh, so much trafficking of sex slaves, where workers are exploited, where women and children throughout the world are abused. How do you make sense of a world where all that happens? Well, we can't make sense of it all, but I do want to say this last verse gives some sanity in what can appear to be chaotic. Namely, that everything will be accounted for, that God will sort everything out in the end. I don't know how we live if we don't believe that. Life is meaningless otherwise. Without God, nothing Without God, nothing really matters. It's all vanity. With God, everything matters. That's why last week we talked about remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait till you're old. We address the whole, all the young people. If you weren't here last week, if you're a parent, it'd be worth maybe getting that message. Um, or if you have young people in particular, talking about uh, living your life for the glory of God while you are young, serving God in your youngest days, not waiting till you're old, but while you're still young and can plant many seeds, following the Lord and seeing what he will do with them. Wake up to God now. That's a goad for young people. God goaded us, the young people, last week and poked and said, okay, you might be an ox that's sort of sitting, and God's calling you to plow because he's going to build a great harvest. It's a little bit different metaphor, but start plowing. Or you may be someone who's wandering over here. God pokes and says, don't go that way. It's death. It's, it's empty. It's meaningless. Come to me. So take, that's a takeaway. Judgment is coming. And then he says two things, which I must cover clearly. I don't, how do you cover this in a few minutes? I'd, Fear God and keep his commandments, that's the whole of the matter. This is the whole duty of man. In the original language, duty is not really there, it's added. It probably more literally reads, this is the whole of man. Okay, this is the whole deal. This is it. This is the reason you're created. He kind of answers the big question, what's the point of life? Well, this is it. Fear the Lord is what he first says. Fear the Lord. There's an impulse in modern American Christians, and I'm not out there. There's an impulse in me. There's an impulse in all of us to just keep everything really, really sort of light in life. But when you think about God, God's heavy. God's just not light. That's what the word glory means, for instance. It means something that's weighty and sober, not lacking joy. The whole book's about joy. But God is sober. He is sober. And the whole calling of our life is is to fear him i was thinking today there's a great book by jerry bridges called the joy of fearing god but there's not a lot of books about fearing god i'm not an expert in what's in the christian bookstores um because i get all my stuff online but i i don't think there's a lot about i think we've got a lot more books about christian dieting i think we know a lot more about the christian view of carbohydrates than we do the fear of the lord Got a lot of book about Christian fitness. Got a lot of books about Christian money management. I think you can go find a lot more about the Christian view of what kind of mortgage to get than you can about the fear of God. We know a lot. Of, got a lot about Christian relationships. A lot about Christian marriages and Christian friendships and, and and Christian. A lot of good stuff. A lot of very very good stuff out there. But I'm not sure we we talk a lot about the fear of God. But he says, boy, this is the whole thing. Look at his life. He didn't fear God. When he went out and married, uh, whatever the number was, 600 women and took 300 concubines, he wasn't fearing God. He married foreign wives that believed in other gods. He was not fearing God. And it cost him dearly. What does it mean to fear God? Well, sometimes it's easier to know what it doesn't mean. When we live our life without reference to God, we're not fearing God. 
when we live our life not really caring about God, we're not fearing God. To fear God, it, it doesn't mean to live frightened of God for the Christian. It doesn't mean that we are to live frightened of God. It, one of the ways that we describe the fear of God that's helpful is it means a reverent awe. That, there's an, that we realize the awesome nature of God. That we realize the power, the immensity, the holiness, the love, the greatness of God. That we're not just lit, walking around living our lives as if God doesn't exist, but we're living our lives as if God really does exist, and He's really here, and He really dwells in me, and He really knows everything about my life. It is living with a heart of reverence, of honor, of awe, of worship. It's to live aware of Him, to be aware of who He is and what He's like and what He's done. There's a sobriety, a joy to be sure, but a sober joy in our lives. A wonder, a weight, a delightedness. Not a weight like a heavy burden, a weight like this is, He is serious. Like God matters. More than anything or anyone, that's the fear of God. There's nothing more important than God. There's no being more glorious than God. There's nothing in my life today that matters more than my relationship with God, my thoughts of God. What I think about Him, do I think about Him, what I believe about Him, nothing is more important in your life. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And he is in to inform all of our life. It's living aware of his holiness. It's living aware of his love. It's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. I'd do some teaching. I'd like to do some teaching on this later because I'm thinking, man, we didn't, I, I didn't develop this out. But I, it's, it's something that we want to think about is the fear of God and how, what that looks like in our lives. Well, it looks like the next phrase. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. The fear of the Lord is an attitude, and the attitude expresses itself in obedience. Obedience to God. Well, he's just been talking about the word of God. And so obedience to God is being shepherded by him. It's reading his word. It's applying his word in our lives. It's following his word, shepherded by him. If you live apart from his commandments, you see where you end up. Read Solomon. But if you live in line with his commandments, you experience a life that is not easy, but it is a life with meaning and with purpose and with joy. The gift of God. Now, this is where he ends his book. Fear God and obey God. And the reality is, if I look at those two things, I can say, well, I'm not... I'm not real good at life. It's, that's the whole purpose of life is to live in the fear of God and live obeying the commandments of God. Then the truth might be that I'm not real good at life sometimes. And when he says the next thing, that he'll bring every deed into judgment, I might only not be real good. I might be in trouble. Right? So the ending of this book sets us up perfe uh, perfectly for the gospel. Because he says, here's the whole purpose of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. And yet we fail in those areas and so here comes God on the scene. God, Jesus Christ, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he comes and he does live a perfect life. He does fear God all the time. He does obey every commandment of God, not just externally, but in his heart. He believes. 
He thinks the right thoughts of God. He speaks the right words of God. He acts purely and perfectly all the time. Here comes someone that lives this perfectly, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that if we believe in him, his record is counted to us. And not only that, but our record is counted to him. So he dies for sinners. Jesus dies because people don't fear God and people don't keep his commandments. People don't live for what they were created for. This is what we were created for. And because we don't live that way, we are, we're apart from God. We're walking around in meaninglessness, in emptiness. In the vapor that doesn't last, we're chasing things foolishly. Our lives aren't nailed down by the Word of God. We're just chasing our passions for life. Uh, we, we, we are, uh, we're not being goaded by God's Word. We're ignoring God's Word and doing whatever we want. And we're, we're heading quickly to a judgment where we will give an account for all of that, and it won't go well. And so this is why God sends Jesus to give His life for us, to die for all of those sins. And to give us new life. So if we believe in Jesus, if we trust him as our savior, if we turn from all those sins and believe in him, we are given new life. We are forgiven. And here's the glorious news. Fear God and keep his commandments is not just the law which leads us to Jesus. It is that. But it is the lifestyle of the one who has met Jesus. So we don't live up to this. We come to Jesus. He forgives us and gives us new life. The scripture comes alive to us. The spirit of God lives in us. And now he starts forming our lives so that we do live this way. So that we do live aware of God. And the fear of God is not just living aware only of his holiness. So that's certainly primary. It is also living aware of his grace, of his power, of his love. It's all of it. Sometimes we can think of the fear of God and we think of Mount Sinai where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and the mountain is shaking and there's fire, the mountain's on fire. I mean, it's this terrifying scene. We think that's the holiness of God. That is the holiness of God. But I want to give you a scene in the Bible that I think reveals the holiness of God and causes us to fear him just as much and maybe more. It's the scene of the empty tomb. It's the scene of the empty tomb because at Mount Sinai, we are all condemned for we, not, we cannot keep that law and do not keep that law. And so the fear of God leads us to Jesus. Jesus dies, is buried, and is, the tomb is empty. Here's something to fear God over. Jesus is alive. He has forgiven our sins. He has, he has been resurrected. He has been enthroned. He sits at the right hand of God. Jesus has forgiven us. Jesus has um, has made us new people. Jesus is now shepherding us and walking with us. That is breathtaking. The fear of God is having your breath taken away. It is awe. It is wonder. It is majesty. It is Mount Sinai. Yes, but it is the empty tomb as well. There is hope in the fear of God. There is love in the fear of God. Because when we read this, we can read this. Wow, the whole purpose of my life is to fear God and keep his commandments. That sounds miserable. No, that is life. Ecclesiastes' life is miserable. He's experiencing the American dream, and he's miserable. To know Jesus is life. First John says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you think the commandments of God are, are slavery, you've misunderstood it. It's exactly the opposite. Sin is slavery. Following your own way is slavery. Knowing Jesus Christ is not, and following Him and obeying His Word, that's not slavery, that's freedom. 
His commandments are not burdensome. The reason we read that and are confused by it and recoil by it is because we don't have a clear picture of the shepherd who shepherds us and with his goad, why he's goading us. Why he's caring for us. Why he calls him to, us to obey him. Because there's no joy in disobedience. There's no life in disobedience. Why we're called to fear him. Because if we see him as he is, we will be filled with a wonder and an awe and a reverence. And when we see his holiness, and also when we see his nearness, we see his love for us. His love should cause us to wonder. His holiness should cause us to wonder. Life is meaningless without Christ, but life is full of meaning with Him. Fearing the Lord and keeping His commandments is a life of freedom. It's a life of joy. It's a life that counts. It's a life where we're sowing seed, where we're planting seed in others, where we're making disciples, where we're reaching those who don't know Him, when we're living for the glory of God together to reflect Him. Listen, if living for what we were created by a loving God for is misery, we have no idea what the Bible is all about. It's joy. So those who follow God should be characterized by joy, by life, by power. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, it says that they encountered the power of God in the disciples. They could tell that surely these men have been with Jesus. People who have been with Jesus exude life. He's come that we may have life and more abundantly. It is the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. But the commands of God are life-giving. So when we break the commands of God, we come to Christ for forgiveness. We ask him to forgive us. We ask him to change us. And over time, he does that. And when we walk in his word and we walk in his commandments and we walk in the fear of God, aware of him, amazed by him, there's a sobriety to our life. We don't want to waste our life on trivial things. Trivial purposes, but we want to invest our life in what matters. Why? Because judgment is coming, and we want to be those who, when the Lord came back, invested their talents in something and made more talents rather than the person who buried their talent and had nothing. Life is meaningless without Christ. Life is full of meaning with him. This is the gift of God. By grace, we are to fear God. By grace, we are to keep his commandments. By grace, we are to celebrate the Savior who has kept his commandments and has died for our breaking of his commandments. We're to receive everything from the Lord as a gift that he gives us according to his word. And we're to take joy in our lives, in the smallest of things. A life in the fear of God should include moments of weeping, moments of laughing, Moments of celebrating, moments of pondering, moments of waiting. It's a full life lived in response to the loving God. And this, Ecclesiastes says, is the end, verse 13, of the matter. All has been heard. Jesus is alive. He dwells with us and in us. Let's fear God and keep his commandments. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.